Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Four ninety-five for the podcast. This week we've got the Earnhardt Sports Podcast. It is Monday, February fourteenth, two thousand twenty-two. People. That is right. We have ourselves a Valentine's Day edition of the Aerator Sports Podcast, which means one, if you didn't know it was Valentine's Day, uh, plug in your headphones and sprint to your local CVS, Walgreens, wherever, pick up a card, some wilted old flowers. And if you didn't know it was Valentine's Day, make sure you're ready for a loaded edition of the Aerator Sports Podcast. Here is what you need to know about today's show. A lot to get into. Yes, I am going to start with the Super Bowl. The Rams, your 2022 Super Bowl champs, Super Bowl 56 champs. Talk about the game, why some of the big stories are overblown, narratives, this, that, the other thing, fact from fiction, truth from falsehood, as I always do on this show. From there, we will really quickly talk about, speaking of Valentine's Day, uh, the, 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 the relationship that is really, I don't know what else there is to say, but I, I was going to try to make some funny pun about Brian Harson and Auburn. We'll spend just a few minutes there. I spent a ton of time on Auburn and Brian Harson on Friday's show. We know Brian Harson's coming back. I tell you what it means for Auburn, Brian Harson, et cetera, going forward. And then from there, we take a quick, a quick break and we talk some college hoops, okay? So we are now about a month out from Selection Sunday. And I'll tell you this I believe that we are already down to five teams that can win the college basketball national championship a month from now. I give you details, I give you what you need to know. We talk a ton of college basketball and the five teams that I believe are good enough to win the national championship. That is on the back end of the show, loaded show, fun show. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is this. Not sure if you saw Super Bowl 56. In Los Angeles, SoFi Stadium, Sunday night. We're going to talk about it because, goodness, every single one of you watched this game, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about it. But the Super Bowl is now over. We have ourselves a new Super Bowl champ. Los Angeles Rams beat the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20 to is your final score. Sean McVay, Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup, Aaron Donald. Super Bowl champs, let's get into it. Let's talk about it because what I will say is this. One thing I think you guys and girls like about me is that 
I kind of, I'm not someone that necessarily goes with all the popular narratives. People say this, people say that. Sometimes I agree, sometimes I disagree. But sometimes I just think that the bottom line is people completely whiff on narratives. And as it comes to Sunday night Super Bowl, I believe that there's a lot of people already talking nonsense about this game. So let's talk about it. Let's break it down. And let me start by saying this. There were a lot of people that immediately after the game immediately pointed to the refs on that final possession for the Los Angeles Rams. A couple calls go their way, including one on the goal line where Cooper Cup has his jersey pulled. First down on the goal line sets up the game-winning score for the Los Angeles Rams. And so a lot of people saw that game. I know we have a lot of listeners in Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, all of the bordering areas of Ohio, if not in Ohio, And I know a lot of you guys and girls are Bengals fans, and I know a lot of you guys and girls want me to open the show by yelling and screaming like I always do about the fact that the refs screwed the Cincinnati Bengals. But what I will tell you about this game, about the refs, and about the Cincinnati Bengals is this. The refs are not the reason that the Cincinnati Bengals lost this game. And instead, what I will tell you is what I tell you all the time. When I look back on this Super Bowl, I do believe that two things about this game can definitively be true. The first, that was a really, 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 really bad time for the refs to start all of a sudden pulling out their flags, having called a penalty essentially all game long. Now they decide to call a bunch in the red zone on the goal line when the Los Angeles Rams are driving for the game-winning score in their home stadium in the Super Bowl, that's a bad time to start pulling out the flags. But it is not the reason the Cincinnati Bengals lost this game. And instead, the Cincinnati Bengals lost this game because at the end of the day, the strengths of the Rams kind of shined in the biggest moments of the game and the fatal flaws of the Cincinnati Bengals kind of showed up in the biggest parts of these games. And so let's talk about it. Let's break it down because everybody wants to focus on those couple penalty calls late in the game that gave the Rams what was ultimately the go-ahead score. But what I would tell you is this. I don't believe the game came down to those couple plays. And instead, what I actually believe is this. The entire game came down to four plays that had nothing to do with what happened on the goal line for the Los Angeles Rams late that allowed them to get the game-winning score. So what happened? What was so big? What was so important? Well, when I look at this game and when I think about why the Los Angeles Rams won this game, there were two plays before they ever scored, before they ever scored, that allowed them to be in position to score, right? Everybody wants to talk about what happened on the goal line, what happened this, what happened that. Am I the only one that remembers that early in the drive, with about six minutes to go, five minutes to go in the game, a little over five minutes to go, the Rams were beyond midfield. They were in Cincinnati territory, not even cross the 50-yard line. And it gets to fourth down. And right there on the couch, I'm sitting there watching by myself. And I'm sitting there saying, this is the play. This is the entire game. And what happens? Cooper Cup, uh, Matthew Stafford turns around, hands it to Cooper Cup. He picks up enough for the first down, continues the drive. Then what happens a few plays after that? Another big third down play. Los Angeles needs to play Matthew Stafford to Bryson Bryson Hopkins. Another first down, and eventually they get to the goal line and score. 
So the Cincinnati Bengals, really before it even came down to what happened on the goal line, the Cincinnati Bengals had chances to make plays. You tackle Cooper Cup in the backfield. And by the way, you know the ball's going to Cooper Cup. Who else do they have? Odell's out. Robert Woods is out. You know it's going to Cooper Cup. And we're going to get into this ridiculous narrative, by the way, of Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth that the Los Angeles Rams had nobody to hand the ball to. But you know it's going to Cooper Cup. I'm not saying you have to make the play because Cooper Cup's a great player. But don't sit here and tell me what happened on the goal line is why the Bengals lost. No. The entire game came down to one play. You make that play, the game's over. You're Super Bowl champs. And so to me, that is the first part of why the Los Angeles Rams are Super Bowl champs. One, because of what I said. Two plays, chance to make a play, fourth down, third and long, can't make either one. Rams get in, into the red zone. Rams score a touchdown. But then let's also talk about what happened when Cincinnati got the ball back with a minute and a half to go. Because I think you guys and girls are really ultimately no different than me. You're watching that game. You've bought into the Joe Burrow mystique. And you say, there's no way Joe Burrow isn't taking this team down the field to at least tie this game. Just get Evan McPherson in field goal range. Just get Evan McPherson close enough where he can knock that thing through the uprights, force this thing in overtime, and let's see what happens from there. And instead, what happens? Well, first of all, I mean, the drive did start out well, right? I mean, the drive did start out well. First play, Joe Burrow makes the throw to Jamar Chase, picks up 17 yards. From there, Joe Burrow hits Tyler Boyd for nine yards, set up second and one. Second and one incomplete, third and one. Hand the ball to Samaji P. Right, he reaches on, can't quite get the first down. And then on fourth down, Joe Burrow drops back. Aaron Donald rushes the passer, sacks him for a loss. Joe Burrow just throws the ball in the air, incompletion. The Rams are your Super Bowl champs. And so when I hear this idea that the Rams got, you know, they, they, the reason they won is because of the refs. Give me a freaking break. There's a reason they won. It was because of four plays. They had a fourth down when the Rams had the ball, converted it. They had a third down later in the drive, converted it. From there, on the other side, Cincinnati gets the ball back. It's second and one. Cannot get a first down. Samaj P. Ryan comes up short. Joe Burrow cannot complete a pass. And I don't blame Samaj P. Ryan. I don't blame Joe Burrow. It's just a fact. And so to me, what it says is, one, I, don't, I think the Rams are a worthy Super Bowl champ. I don't know that they were the better team in this game. Heck, I'll take it a step further. I don't think they were the best team in the playoffs. I don't know that they were definitively better than Tampa a few weeks ago. I definitely don't know that they were definitively better than the San Francisco 49ers a few weeks ago. But what I do know is they made the plays when they had to on offense and defense. What I would also say is I thought this game, I thought the big plays, the good and the bad for the good for Los Angeles, the bad for Cincinnati, I thought they were metaphors for the, the individual teams that we saw all season long. Starting with the LA Rams. One, what was the deal? All season long. Yeah, you had Robert Woods early. Yeah, you had Odell Beckham late. Yeah, you traded for Sony Michelle in the offseason. Yeah, you had Cam Akers. He was hurt, then he came back. But at the end of the day, when Matthew Stafford needed big plays, what did he do? He went to Cooper Cup all season long. Game-winning touchdown against the San Francisco 49ers. Game-winning touchdown against the... Uh, the game, uh, the, the, the deep pass that set up the game-winning field goal against Tampa, and then, of course, the game-winning touchdown against the, against the Cincinnati Bengals to win the Super Bowl. 
So that's one. But two, go back and listen to Friday's episode. What did I tell you on Friday? And by the way, I'm not taking credit as though I had an original thought that nobody else had. But what I said on Friday's episode was this. Everybody wants to talk about Matthew Stafford. Everybody wants to talk about Cooper Cup. Well, here's the bottom line. You know who had the Rams in position all season long to be in this position to win a Super Bowl? It was Aaron Donald. It was Vaughn Miller when he came. And it was the defensive line. I watched that Tampa Bay game. You know who sent Tom Brady into retirement? Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller sent Tom Brady into retirement if you really believe that Tom Brady is retired. That defensive line has been awesome all playoffs long. And so I thought it was a nice metaphor that at the end of the game, it was Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller making plays, specifically Aaron Donald, the big sack late in the game. It wasn't really technically a sack because Joe Burrow got rid of the ball, but he's running down the field. Hand me my ring. Hand me my ring. Aaron Donald was the best player for the Rams all season long. Him and Cooper Cup, they were the ones that made plays late. They are the reason the Rams are Super Bowl champs. And then on the reverse side, what I would also say is that the Cincinnati Bengals, we talked about it. We talked about it on this show. You guys and girls know it. You're not dumb. You're smart smart sports fans. The offensive line all year long was the kryptonite of the Cincinnati Bengals. I'll take it a step further. The offensive line dating back two years was the kryptonite. You draft Joe Burrow, he gets hurt like five, six games into his rookie year because they can't block for him. You go back to the draft last year. I still got bad tweets up that say, don't draft Jamar Chase, take the offensive lineman. And Jamar Chase is a difference maker, and they made the right decision. I was wrong on that, just so it's established in case it is not. You should have taken Jamar Chase. But if you got anything to do in this offseason, it's to shore up that offensive line. And so to me, people want to blame the refs. People want to do this. People want to do that. I thought, one, um, it was there were some incredible metaphors for the entire season. First off, Los Angeles has been making plays all playoffs long. They made the ones that they had to. But two, Cooper Cup and Aaron Donald are the reason that they're here. And I know after the NFC Championship game, I talked about um, going for it and risking it all and trading for Matthew Stafford and signing Odell Beckham and trading for Vaughn Miller. But at the end of the day, the two franchise pillars that have been here from the beginning with Sean McVay, Cooper Cup and Aaron Donald are the reason. And then with the Cincinnati Bengals, We knew all year long that offensive line was going to be their downfall, and it was in the final few minutes of the game. And so to me, that's why the Los Angeles Rams are Super Bowl champs. With that said, a couple other thoughts from this game. First of all, if you listen to Friday's show, I told you that I thought that uh, I'll tell you, you know, you get some stuff right, you get some stuff wrong. By technicality, I got this stuff wrong. I told you I thought Aaron Donald was a great long shot MVP kind of candidate. Cooper Cup ends up winning it. I guess I would say I have no fundamental issue with Cooper Cup winning it. Obviously, he has been phenomenal all playoffs long. I would have given it to Aaron Donald. But quickly, I do want to shout out Cooper Cup. And quickly, I do kind of have a question for you. Was anybody else watching the game with the sound on? And I know a lot of you guys and girls were probably at a Super Bowl party and you probably don't didn't hear everything. But throughout the entire second half, after Odell Beckham got hurt, Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels really tried really, really, really hard to sell us on the idea that the the Los Angeles Rams were essentially down to zero playmakers because Odell Beckham got hurt. 
And it's no disrespect to Odell. We'll talk about him in a minute. And I understand that Tyler Higby, their starting tight end, was hurt. And I understand that Robert Woods, a great wide receiver, had been hurt earlier in the season. But why were the announcers, Al Michaels, an all-time great, Chris Collinsworth, really good at what he does, trying to sell us that the Los Angeles Rams had nobody. They had Cooper Cup, and he made every single play down the stretch. So while I would have given the MVP to Aaron Donald, I think there is no doubt in my mind that Cooper Cup is a worthy MVP. Let me also say this. Another big takeaway from the Los Angeles Rams perspective, you know, there was a lot after the game about, you know, the Hollywood story is complete. And Matthew Stafford exercises all the demons. Like, let me just say this. I think you guys and girls, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know, like, I- I'm not here to tear people down and say, like, they're terrible. Like, like I- I'm not somebody that comes on these airwaves and likes to just rip people apart and say they stink at their jobs or whatever. But can we stop with the overselling Matthew Stafford? Like, like I haven't even been that impressed by Joe Burrow over the course of these playoffs. But Joe Burrow was better than Matthew Stafford on Sunday. Like, Matthew Stafford was fine, but can we stop with the Hollywood ending for Matthew Stafford? Finished the game 26-40, very respectable, 283 yards, but most of it came on the final drive. Three touchdowns and two interceptions. I don't think it was Joe Burrow's finest performance, but up until the final drive, Joe Burrow had more passing yards than Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford had two interceptions. Matthew Stafford was kind of doing all of the things that Lions fans told you that he does, which is he gets a little bit reckless at times, he gets a little bit goofy at times, he makes bad decisions at times, he holds onto the ball too long sometimes, and he made enough plays late, and congratulations to him, he's the Super Bowl champ. Nobody in 25 years is going to remember how it went down, just that he's a Super Bowl champ, but can we stop with this, the magical Hollywood ending? Like, no. There were reasons the Rams won the game. I think they were mostly Aaron Donald-related, I think it was mostly Cooper Cup being incredible, getting wide open and making plays. But let's stop with the Matthew Stafford stuff. Really quickly from the Cincinnati Bengals perspective, I would say outside of what I've already discussed, I don't know that I have any incredible takeaways when it comes to Cincinnati Bengals. Listen, this is an awesome story. Joe Burrow, I don't know what else there is to say. Undefeated national champion in LSU, goes through the playoffs, beats Patrick Mahomes to clinch the AFC North, Beats Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs. Obviously had a ton of success. What I will say is I think he needs a little bit more help. The defensive front was awesome all playoffs long. I thought the defensive line, the defensive front for the Cincinnati Bengals didn't get enough credit all playoffs long. Three three interceptions forced against uh, the Tennessee Titans, so I guess not really the defensive front, but the, the defense as a whole. Three interceptions against the Tennessee Titans, Ryan Tannehill. A couple against Patrick Mahomes a few weeks ago. I always thought the defense didn't get enough credit, but I will say I thought Joe Burrow was awesome on Sunday, and I thought he played really, really, really well, and I think he's got two really dynamic young wide receivers with Tyler Boyd and Jamar Chase. I do think the next big thing going forward for them, they got to shore up the offensive line, and I think the one thing that we can't help but learn with professional sports, there's no guarantees in this thing. It's funny, I was texting a, a buddy of mine who's a Bengals fan who listens to this podcast. His name is Ed. Shout out, Ed. And he said, I think we're going to be in the conversation for a long time, but I can't guarantee you that we're going to get back. And I'll tell you this, I don't think you can guarantee that the Cincinnati Bengals are going to get back. I know we're all caught up in the Joe Burrow mystique right now, but think about where we were two calendar years ago with Patrick Mahomes. Oh my God, it's not a question of if he's going to win another Super Bowl, but how many? 
Is he going to win five? Is he going to win six? Is he going to top Tom Brady? And then last year he loses to the Bucs. And then last year, this year, Patrick Mahomes can't get back to the Super Bowl, which is no shame to him. It just shows you how hard it is. And so for anybody that's anointing Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals, I'll tell you this. I think they got to be the favorite in the AFC North going forward, but I don't think it's going to be easy. Baltimore Ravens are going to figure it out with Lamar Jackson. Cleveland Browns have maybe the most talented roster in football, although I don't know that Baker Mayfield's the answer. Pittsburgh Steelers are going to figure it out because they've always figured it out. But what I will say, I think they'll be in the conversation. I don't think there's any guarantees. But I would say I do feel good if I'm a Bengals fan. You now have the guy. And as we talked about, as I talked about with Bill Polian on last episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I think we all think there's this kind of narrative that the idea that if you don't have that elite difference maker at quarterback, that you can't win Super Bowls. I think we all think that, we all kind of understand that, right? If you don't have one of those top four or five guys, you're not winning the big one. And I think we all kind of think that it's kind of a new age thing, right? We all think, oh, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl and Brad Johnson this and blah, blah, blah. Bill Polian said back in the 80s when he was running the Buffalo Bills, he said, we got to go get Jim Kelly out of the USFL. We got to get this guy to the organization. We're not trading him. And so to me, I'm going in circles, but I'm bringing it up to just simply say, if you're a Cincinnati Bengals fan, there are no guarantees, but you got to feel good because you know you have one of those guys. And you know you're going to be in the conversation going forward as long as Joe Burrow is on your team and healthy. Doesn't guarantee anything with Josh Allen. Doesn't guarantee anything with Patrick Mahomes. Doesn't guarantee anything with Justin Herbert in the same conference, Lamar Jackson. But I'll tell you, you got to feel good if you're a Bengals fan, even if you don't feel good because of the way the game ended. Uh, a couple other thoughts, trying to think of what else, what else kind of stood out to me from the Super Bowl. One, what I would say, my goodness. For, well, one last thought before we get to some of the off-the-field stuff is, one, do hope Odell Beckham's okay. You know, listen, love Odell, hate him, cocky, arrogant, this, that, the other thing. He was right. He won the battle between him and Cleveland. Uh, you know, we talk about the Belichick versus Brady divorce or the Aaron Rodgers versus Mike McCarthy divorce. When it comes to the Odell versus Baker Mayfield divorce, it's over, right? There's no more conversation to be had. Odell should have never been in Cleveland. It never worked out. And Odell was significantly better the second that he left Baker Mayfield. Now, obviously, as I record here, we wait to see what happens. I know you guys and girls, by the time you listen to this show, we may have a resolution. I do hope he's okay. In terms of the off-the-field stuff, in terms of the non-Super Bowl, on-the-field-related stuff, a um, couple things. One, might be showing my age here. Did anybody else love that Super Bowl halftime show? And it's so funny, right? Because I, I do think it's kind of we're all a byproduct of our own generation. And so the people that are probably in their 40s, early 50s, you loved when Prince was the Super Bowl halftime show. And... People even a little bit older, Michael Jackson did a few half, Super Bowl halftime shows. I thought Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige were about as good of a Super Bowl halftime show as I could ever remember. Forgot about Dre is like 20 years old. It still freaking pops. Eminem still pops. So credit to all those guys and girls. Really enjoyed the Super Bowl halftime show. Thought it was one of the best halftime shows that I can ever remember. Uh, I didn't even want to continue watching the game. I just want to listen to old school Eminem and Dr. Dre on YouTube during the entire second half. But because I do this podcast, because some of you guys and girls actually care about my sports opinions, had to go out and finish the show, had to go out and finish the game, even though all I want to do is listen to Forgot About Dre on loop on YouTube today. 
Uh, and what I would say beyond that, you know, the commercials, nothing really stood out to me. The only one that I thought was really funny was Jim Carrey, the cable guy. Uh, you know, the, the new age cable guy. If you didn't see it, basically there, there's an old movie with Jim Carrey called The Cable Guy. Well, now obviously cable is wireless and you don't need a cable guy to come in and fix it. It was a really good one. I really enjoyed that one. Nothing else really stood out. Um, if you're a Schitt's Creek fan, there was one with Eugene Levy and uh, Catherine O'Hara, basically Johnny and Moira Rose, which was okay, I guess. It was kind of weird. Uh, there was one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which was interesting. Salma Hayek, I think there was like a Buick commercial. Nothing else really stood out to me about the off-the-field stuff. And finally, I would say, nothing really stood out about the commercials, but one last thought before we go to Brian Harson, and then we get to college hoops. I'll say this. So, I live in Los Angeles, okay? And because of what I do, I have some opportunities. Opportunities that some people might not have. But what I would tell you is this. This week, this past week, was the first time that I have ever been able to fully engage in Super Bowl stuff. And some of it was like behind-the-scenes work stuff that some people wouldn't have access to. But most of what I did over the last couple weeks, over the last couple days of the week, was stuff that anybody can do when the Super Bowl is in town. So my mom was in town this weekend. Shout out to my mom. She listens to most episodes of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Don't know if she's listening right now. But she was in town this week, and we went down to the Super Bowl fan experience at the L.A. Convention Center, probably about 25 minutes from where I live. We did the whole thing where we threw the footballs, we kicked the balls, we did this, we did that. We had a great time. Then we went out to lunch. Go to lunch, we're having a burger, having a beer, whatever. And Josh Allen comes in for a Q&A. Josh Allen, the Buffalo Bills quarterback. An hour later, Jerry Rice comes in for a Q&A. And we got pictures and we did this and we heard him speak and we did that. And I just bring it all up to say this. I understand that not everybody has the means to just travel and bounce and do this and do that and have fun and whatever. But two things. One, if you ever financially can afford to go to the Super Bowl without breaking the bank and without putting yourself in debt and without putting a second mortgage on your house, do it. And when I say go to the Super Bowl, I don't even mean go to the game. I just mean go to the city, go go to town, do all the stuff, go through all the expos. It really was like a super fun experience that I really genuinely enjoyed. I cannot recommend it enough, and I cannot suggest it enough for those of you who have never been, and certainly if your team gets there. Like I said, I know we have a lot of Bengals fans that listen to this show. If your team ever gets to a Super Bowl, go down, because there's no guarantee, there's no promises that you'll ever be back. I tell the story all the time. 2011, I was just out of school. UConn goes to the Final Four. They beat Kentucky on Saturday. I end up booking two flights, one for myself, one for a young lady I was dating at the time. She's no longer, uh, uh, you know, in my life. But I went down. I overpaid, maxed out a credit card, did whatever to watch my team win a championship. UConn beat Butler in the national championship game. But I just bring it up to say if you have a chance to watch your team play in the big game, go do it. And maybe you can't get to the Super Bowl itself. Maybe you can't get into the game itself. But go into the city, experience everything, go to the convention center, go to the NFL fan experience, do all that stuff, go to the bars because it's one of a kind. You never know who you're going to see. Again, I was having lunch, and Jerry Rice is just doing a Q&A. I cannot recommend it enough. I hope you guys enjoyed the Super Bowl. I hope you enjoyed the NFL as a whole. Don't talk a ton of NFL, but obviously over the last two, three weeks, I couldn't help but do it. 
Now we head to the offseason. We head to the NFL offseason. We head to the college football offseason. And we head to what should be a really fun couple weeks. I'm going to start transitioning to college basketball later in this show, but we'll obviously do a ton of college basketball on this show. But just quick shout out to the NFL, man. Um, you know, I know this is a, I guess you would call it a divisive time that we live in. Um, you know, people like to argue, people like to debate, people like to fight, people like to whatever. But I thought the NFL put on an incredible product over the course of this season. I thought college football did an incredible job. I think college basketball is doing an incredible job right now. But the NFL put on an incredible product. Obviously, the the four divisional round games when the Bengals beat the Titans, when the 49ers beat the Packers, when the Rams beat the Bucks, and of course when the KC Chiefs beat the Bills, then you had the two conference championship games, then you had the Super Bowl. I just thought it was a really, really, really fun time for the NFL, and I hope you guys and girls enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, don't know how much NFL will actually be talking here on this podcast over the next couple months. Uh, obviously, if Aaron Rodgers, something happens with him, we'll discuss that. Same with Deshaun Watson, same with Russell Wilson. But for the most part, it's going to be a lot of college hoops, a lot of, a lot of college football, whatever it is. But really fun football season as a whole. I hope you guys and girls enjoyed football as much as me. Obviously, we didn't talk much NFL until college football was done. But just a really, really fun time to be a sports fan. Really quickly, before we get to college football, I do want college basketball. I do want to transition to one other college football topic. And it's one I, I don't really know that I have that much of a strong definitive opinion on. That's our old buddy Brian Harson. And it only feels appropriate that here on Valentine's Day, we give a quick shout out to Brian Harson and the marriage between Brian Harson and the Auburn family. That's right. Let's go back to Friday's episode. If you remember, if you listen to Friday's episode, basically I talked a ton about Brian Harson off the top. At the time, he was going through a back and forth with Auburn. Basically, the boosters were trying to make stuff up about him, were basically trying to put him in a position where he either uh, decided to resign, take a reduced buyout just to get out of there, or the opposite, uh, convince their school administration to do an investigation. Hopefully, they could find something. Well, as it turns out, they did an investigation, nothing came up, and on Friday afternoon, shortly after I released the last episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Brian Harson was retained as the head football coach at Auburn. First of all, very quickly, let me give a shout out to my buddy Cole Kublik, really good friend of mine, love Cole, respect the hell out of Cole. Uh, he's been on this podcast many times. Cole Kublik was the first person that said, I am hearing that Brian Harson is going to be back as the Auburn head football coach, and now it's about the school getting in alignment to put him in a position to succeed. And I guess what I would say when it comes to the Brian Harson stuff, that's really kind of my only really big takeaway. If you listen to Friday's show, I said, I don't think he's coming back. And the reason I didn't think he's coming back is the reason I think it's going to be really hard for him to have success going forward. The reason that I thought Auburn almost put themselves in position where they had to let get rid of Brian Harson is because even now that he's back, the guy basically has no leverage, right? He was already going into a situation where he had to replace his offensive coordinator, his defensive coordinator, and some, spe uh, not special teams, uh, some, some position coaches who had left the program. He had 20 players leave via the transfer portal. He had the number 18 recruiting class in college football this past year in the 2022 cycle, which was 7th or 8th in the SEC. And why I said that Auburn probably had to get rid of Brian Harson, even if it meant paying an $18 million buyout was because of the fact that if they didn't, 
He was basically coming back as a dead man walking at Auburn. I didn't know how he could retain any kind of tangible coaching staff. In other words, now that he's got coordinator spots to fill, position spots to fill, I don't know what respectable head coach or, I mean, what, what respectable coordinator or assistant coach is going to come to Auburn. And I don't know how you recruit the high school class of 2023 because all those kids are sitting there saying, bro, you almost got fired this past off season. Most of the boosters clearly don't want you. How am I going to come play for you when I know that nobody wants you there? Instead, Auburn decides to bring him back, and, and I don't know what to make of this situation. One, in some ways, I'm happy for Brian Harson. right? I'm happy because it's clear that people at Auburn, whoever it was, whatever boosters it was, whatever, made the decision that they didn't want him there, and they were going to do anything, including ruin his personal reputation, the reputation of others within the program, including that recruiting coordinator that I talked about on Friday, they were going to do whatever it was. They were going to make up lies. They were going to make up salacious stuff, whatever it took to get him out of that spot. So in many ways, I'm happy that he retained the spot because I don't want to see a guy lose his job and lose his livelihood and lose his credibility and lose his reputation over lies. At the same time, though, I just don't know how it's supposed to work because it's not only that you did what you did, Auburn. It's not only that you put yourself in a position where you tried to cut the legs out from the current football coach by making up lies, but now he's got to come back into that locker room. Now, the good news is the guys that are still in the program, they truly believe in him. The bad news is he doesn't have the talent of forget the top teams that he's going to have to face. He doesn't have the talent of most everybody else in the SEC that's had a normal offseason. And that's my concern with Auburn. I think it's great you decide I think it's great that he's coming back even though I think a lot of Auburn fans probably aren't very happy with it. But at the same time, how were you I guess what I would say is you weren't very close to beating Alabama. You weren't very close to beating your cross-division rival Georgia. A&M, whatever you think about how it's going down is adding talent by the boatload. Arkansas is coming off a 9-win season, Ole Miss is coming off a 10-win season, and Auburn is moving in the wrong direction. And so it goes back to what I said a minute ago, which is I'm happy that he's back, but I don't know how he builds any sort of momentum off this past season. And I think it could be a situation where after next season, if it goes bad, and how is it not going to go bad? He just has a less talented roster than most people in his division. I mean, is he gone after next year? Does he survive till 2024? I don't know, but it's obviously not a great situation. Now, what I would also say is the reverse can be true as well. Auburn has a history of doing weird stuff with coaches, and those coaches rallying despite what goes on behind the scenes. The most famous story is obviously what happened with Tommy Tuberville, the early part of the 2000s. For those of you who are not college football historians, uh, end of the season, Tommy Tuberville. Uh, we don't know if he's going to keep his job, if he's going to lose his job, all that good stuff. What happens, um, you know, <laughs> what happens is the Auburn administration ends up meeting with, um, you know, meeting with, Bobby Petrino to try and convince him to take the head coaching job. Tommy Tuberville gets whiff of it. Tommy Tuberville ends up keeping the job. And a year later, he goes, in, he goes on to win the SEC, goes undefeated. And if there had been a 14 playoff, might have been a national champion. That was the year, if you remember, three undefeated teams at the end of the season. USC plays Oklahoma for a national championship. Auburn is left on the outside looking in. But I bring it up to say that there have been stories of Auburn coaches trying to get run out 
and they figure out a way to keep the job and rally. I mean, it happened with Gus Malzahn multiple times. You thought he was out, and then something crazy happens. He wins the SEC title in 2017, or he wins the SEC West, I should say, uh, in 2017, even if Georgia ultimately ends up winning the SEC title. So it has happened before. So, listen, I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore with Brian Harson. What I would say is crazy situation. Yes, I came on the air on Friday, said I did not expect that I thought he was going to keep his job, yet here we are. Brian Harson remains your head football coach at Auburn. It's a totally bizarre deal, but it's also kind of on par with Auburn, and now we see what happens from here. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, speaking of Auburn, let's talk a little college hoops. Because what I do not do on today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I don't go game by game in college hoops this past weekend. A lot of games, a lot of stuff happened. But instead, what I do is this. I believe that after this weekend, we are down to five teams that I believe can win a national championship. A lot of teams can make a Final Four. A lot of teams can make an Elite Eight. But I believe we are down to five teams that can legitimately win the national championship. What I want to do is I want to come back and talk about who those five teams are, why I believe it's only five, each of those teams' strengths and weaknesses, and who I believe can ultimately win the national championship. I'll be right back. Shout out to the Rams. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. And I do want to talk a little college hoops, baby. Because it is now officially the middle of February. The NFL is officially over. Not sure if you heard. We just talked about it last segment or two segments ago. And it's college hoop season, baby. And so this is a really fun time of year. And I thought Saturday, again, just reflected how great this time of year is in college basketball. You watch games all day Saturday. There was no football. There was no distractions. It's just wall-to-wall, big games, big atmospheres, great crowds, rivalries, uh, down to the final possession. Just really fun time of year, and it's going to be this way for the next five or six weeks to the first weekend in April when we crown a national champion. But I bring it up because I also think that this is the time of year where we, we start to get the results and we start to kind of contextualize the results that matter. You win a big game in November. You win a big game in December. But what does it really mean? Well, now it's the middle of February. And when you win big games, you know, okay, that means something. When a team like UCLA has now lost three of the last four, that means something this time of year. And so what I want to do is I want to do something different on today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Because, uh, you know, the last couple, really, frankly, since, what, November... Every single show, I kind of on a Monday, I kind of go through the big results from the weekend. Okay, Gonzaga beat Alabama, or uh, Alabama beats Gonzaga. What does that mean? Arizona beats Illinois. What does that mean? Kentucky uh, beats uh, whoever. Uh, uh, I don't remember who they've beaten the last couple weeks. Uh, Kansas. What does that mean? What I want to do is something different, though, because what I want to do is I believe now that we are at the point that we can definitively make statements about what is going to happen come March, right? We didn't have the data in November. We didn't have the data in December. We didn't have enough information about all these teams. But on Sunday, I tweeted out something that I do want to talk about and that I do want to talk about in the context of the bigger picture of college basketball. So rather than going game by game and Kentucky, oh, they, they, they beat Florida. What does it mean? And, and Alabama bounced back against Arkansas. What does it mean? Instead of doing that, this is what I want to do. I believe that after Saturday, I believe this. I believe that we now know who are the teams that are definitively good enough to win a national championship. Now, something crazy can always happen. But every single year, we say, oh, it's so wide open. And the field usually condenses to about four or five teams that can legitimately win it all. I'm going to give you the data on that in a second. But first, 
I believe that after Saturday, I've seen enough college basketball. I believe that we are down to just five teams that can win the national championship this year. Other teams are good. Other teams can get to a Final Four. Other teams can maybe even get to a title game. But to win six games in March against six completely different types of teams and opponents and styles from different parts of the country, different conferences, I believe that we are down to five teams that can win the national championship this year. I'm going to give you the five, and then I'm going to get into why, and then I'm going to give you two or three at the end that I do not believe are capable of winning it. The five that I believe, and I'll put them in alphabetical order, I don't know if I would have them in an order at this point. I believe we're down to five teams that can win a national championship this year. Number one, Auburn. Number two, Arizona. I guess I already didn't put it in alphabetical order, but whatever. Auburn, Arizona, Duke, Gonzaga, Kentucky. To me, those are the five teams, the only five teams right now that I believe are capable of winning a national championship. Other teams are good. Other teams are this. Other teams are that, but they're either too young, they're too flawed, they're too this, they're too that. They don't shoot well enough. They don't defend well enough. They don't rebound well enough. I believe those are the only five teams right now that can win a national championship, and I feel good about that for the rest of the season. We have enough data. I don't need more time. That is the fact. Give me those five. Auburn, Arizona, Gonzaga, Duke, Kentucky. You take the field. I feel really good. And before we get into why I like those five teams, why I believe those are the five teams that are capable of winning it all, let me even backtrack and let me give you some stats that I do think are important. And they're stats that if you are a longtime listener of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, you've probably heard me rattle off before. But what I hate about this time of year in college basketball, first of all, I hate college basketball most, uh, I love them individually as people, but I do think too many people in the college basketball media just regurgitate the same thing. One guy or girl says one thing, and everybody just shares it as if it's fact. And one thing that gets shared all the time this time of year is, this year, college basketball is so wide open. There are so many teams that can win it all. It could be one of 10 or 15 or 20. Well, here's the bottom line. You'll probably hear Jay Billis say that over the next couple weeks. You might hear some other broadcaster say it over the next couple weeks. Here's the bottom line. Maybe this year is the exception. But factually, it's simply not true. And how do I know it's not true? Well, I got the data to back it up. And I've shared this stat before, but I think it always blows people away when I say it. Every year, people say it's so wide open, anybody could win it. Well, that's not really true. Because over the last 15 years, okay, so this is the data dating back to 2007 when Florida won its second national championship under Billy Donovan with the Joe Kim Noah, Al Horford, whatever. Since 2007, 15 and 14 NCAA tournaments have been played. Obviously, the 2021 has been canceled. 2020 tournament was canceled. So 14 tournaments since 2007. Here are the facts. Of those 14 tournaments, 11 teams were won. 11 of those tournaments were won by a number one seed. So 11 of the 14 tournaments were won by a number one seed. The three years that a number one seed did not win the national championship, 2011, UConn, who had Kemba Walker, who was definitively the best player in the tournament, and I would argue was playing essentially as a one seed by the end of the year. They won the Big East, which was the toughest conference maybe in the history of college basketball that year. They set a conference record with 11 NCAA tournament bids. UConn wins the Big East tournament before they go to the NCAA tournament. They have the definitive best player in college basketball. 2014, UConn won it actually as a seven seed, but they had Shabazz Napier, the best player in the tournament. And then in 2016, Villanova won the national championship as the highest ranked two seed. So what I can tell you is this, Jay Billis, whoever, they're going to tell you, this is the most wide open we've ever seen it. And that may be true. 
But what I can tell you is over the last 15 years, we have pretty concrete data. If you're not a number one seed or you don't have the definitive best player in the tournament, you ain't winning this thing. And so with that said, I feel very confident that there are we are down to five teams that can legitimately win it all because, again, there's a difference between a team that's good enough, and I think this is another important caveat too. I gave you the stats on the national championship, and when people say it's wide open, what I think they really mean is there are a lot of teams that could get to a Final Four, and that I don't disagree with. Somebody asked me this morning, who are your dark horses to get to a Final Four? Well, there's like 30 of them. We've had five seeds, six seeds, seven seeds, eight seeds make, make Final Fours, but there's a difference between getting to a Final Four and winning a national championship. You get to a Final Four, it's great, you cherish it forever, but you still got two more games to win to call yourself the national champion. And so I believe that we are down to five teams that are capable of winning a national championship, and let me get into each of them and why I believe those teams are good enough to win it. First of all, I know I said I'd go alphabetical order. I know Arizona's before Auburn, but my notes have Auburn first because I'm an idiot. So let's start with Auburn. And what I would say with Auburn is, first of all, I mean, if you don't buy, buy an Auburn right now, I don't know what to tell you. It's February 14th as you guys listen to this. Uh, Auburn has played 25 games. As we record here, they are 23-2, 11-1 in SEC play, and they still haven't lost a single game in regulation. So, I mean, we're literally talking about one or two bounces the other way. They beat UConn, they beat Arkansas, and I don't feel any different about Auburn this week than I did last week just because they went to Bud Walton Arena, one of the craziest arenas that we've seen in recent college basketball history, and were upset in, in some ways by Arkansas. In some ways, they weren't upset because Arkansas is a really good team that was playing at home, and this is college basketball in February. You go on the road, you play good teams, and sometimes you take losses. And so to me with Auburn, I don't feel any different about them today just because they lost to Arkansas the other day. As a matter of fact, in many ways, I feel better on this Monday, February 14th, Valentine's Day because of what I saw Saturday. You lose on the road Tuesday, Wednesday night, whatever it was against Arkansas, that it's easy to kind of you know hang your head and feel bad and feel this. Well, then they come back and they destroy Texas A&M, which is probably uh, a fringe bubble NIT-ish type team. But you destroy Texas A&M and you get right back on track. And so in many ways, not only am I not worried about Auburn after that loss, I feel a lot better. I'll take it a, a step further from a few weeks ago. Remember we had Bruce Pearl on the podcast the year, the week that Auburn became number one in the country? And remember what he said? He said, we're going to struggle. We're going to have some losses. This, we're not going undefeated the rest of the way. So the fact that they still won three, four games afterward when Bruce Pearl knew we got the target on our back, I feel really good. In terms of why I like Auburn, let me say this. Sometimes in life, and sometimes in basketball, there is a difference between the best player and the most important player. The best player and the player with the intangibles that take you over the top. Let me give you an extreme example, okay? And I'm not comparing these college basketball players to these NFL players. Tom Brady, you could argue, at no point was ever the most talented quarterback in the NFL. Peyton Manning, played during the, the, the Tom Brady era. Brett Favre played during the Tom Brady era. Patrick Mahomes right now probably has more God-given talent. Josh Allen, you could argue, has more God-given talent. Um, you know, I, I said Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers. You go on and on down the list. But Tom Brady had the intangibles that help you win. And I bring it up as it pertains to Auburn because of this. Not saying that Jabari Smith doesn't help you win. But to me, there's a difference between the best player and the most important player. And Jabari Smith might be the best, most talented player in college basketball. If I had the number one pick in the NBA draft, I'd have a hard time passing him up. 
But what I realized this weekend definitively is this. Walker Kessler, the big seven foot one transfer center from North Carolina, is Auburn's most important player. And I would argue probably the second most important player to his team in college basketball, trailing only Oscar Shibwe at Kentucky. What do I mean by that? First of all, did you see the stat line that Walker Kessler put up on Saturday in the win over Texas A&M? How about this for a stat line? 12 points, 11 rebounds, and 12 blocks for Walker Kessler on Saturday against Texas A&M. Unbelievable stat line. Whatever you get as a triple-double with blocks, that's incredible. And this, by the way, after he went for 16, 19 rebounds and 7 blocks against Arkansas the other day. And so why I like Auburn and why I like this team specifically is because I believe Walker Kessler, you can argue, changes the game on both ends of the court more than anybody in college basketball. He's the clear defensive national player of the year. He's a guy that averages close to four blocks per game, second in the country behind only that kid that's seven foot six or whatever from Western Kentucky. Uh, but also on offense, he's so big, so long, so athletic that the guards, all you got to do is throw it up at the rim and he's going to go down and get it. And oh, by the way, I got to correct myself because with the 12 block performance, Walker Kessler now leads college basketball with 4.6 blocks per game, which is most in college basketball. Walker Kessler to me changes the game more on any level than anyone in college basketball. More than that though, and here's why this is important, is that it's not just Walker Kessler. I just mentioned it. They might have the number one pick in the draft also in the front court. His name's Jabari Smith. You may have heard of him. He's six foot ten. He shoots 40-plus percent from three. He's Auburn's leading scorer, and he's going to be the number one pick in the draft. Beyond him, KD Johnson, I've talked about him, transfer from Georgia. Just a, 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 a strong, tough guard, emotional leader of this team. I like the other guards, too. They've been playing without Seb Jasper, who's a really important piece as their starting point guard. Wendell Green, another transfer, has been phenomenal. And so when I look at this team, we can do the song and dance about Arkansas and what does it mean, and yeah, they, lost, they beat Kentucky, but Kentucky was banged up. I don't care. What I am telling you is Auburn has all of the pieces to win the national championship. They are one of five that I believe can win it all. The second team I want to talk about Oh, it's the Arizona Wildcats, and it's really interesting, right? Because if you listen to this podcast on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, you remember about two weeks ago, I was at the Arizona-UCLA game, and prior to going to the game, I swung by Arizona practice on, on Wednesday in the lead-up to the game on Thursday. And what I said was this with Arizona. I have seen now in person this season, I saw Duke in person in Vegas against Gonzaga. I've obviously seen Gonzaga twice, both against, against Duke and UCLA, I have seen UCLA now three times in person. I've seen Villanova. So I've seen by any tangible measurement, three of the top probably six or seven teams in the country, Gonzaga, Duke, Arizona, seen UCLA, which is a top 10 team, and seen Villanova, which is probably a top 12 to top 15 team. What I can definitively tell you is that when they walk in the gym, the Arizona Wildcats are the single most impressive team in college basketball. No disrespect to anybody else. Not saying other people don't have great athletes. That's not what I'm saying. Calm down, random fan. There is no team that is more physically impressive when they walk in the gym than Arizona. It's not just that they have Christian Coloco, who's seven foot one, and that he has a backup named Umar Balo, who's seven foot one. They also have Azulis Tabellis, 
six foot ten on the front court. But what really stands out when you see Arizona, their guards are so big. Kirk Creasa, their point guard, is about six three. But then you have Dalen Terry, who's six six. Ben Matherin, who's going to be a lottery pick, who's six six. And you walk in the gym, and you say, "How does anybody ever beat these guys?" Well, nobody's really beating them because, as I tweeted or as I said on Instagram. I don't think we appreciate what Arizona has done really over the last four or five uh, games, really the last 10 days or so. But Arizona, because of the goofy Pac-12 cancellations, COVID that happened in late, uh, mid to late December into January, Arizona had to play five games in the last nine days. And when I talk about Arizona, here's what you need to know. Five games last nine days. They went 5-0. and oh, Three straight road wins, all by double figures, and I don't care that they play in the Pac-12. I know, oh, they don't play anybody. And like, yes, I think even Arizona would like to have more tournament caliber teams in the middle of the conference. But when you go to Washington State, which is a bubble team, and you basically dominate from start to finish, when you go five and zero in a nine—that's like an NBA schedule. Five and zero, nine-game stretch. You are really, really, really good when you have three of those wins on the road. I don't care who the opponents are. I don't care what conference you play in. When you go 5-0 and over a nine-game stretch, 3-0 and on the road, and by the way, they beat at least one NCAA tournament caliber team in Washington State by 12 on the road in their biggest home game in forever, I'm sorry, this team is good. And what I would say is, again, I don't care that they play in the Pac-12. Just watch this team. First of all, offensively, it's just poetry in motion. It's beautiful, and I had Kentucky fans and this fan base, oh, I don't care, I don't watch them, they don't play anybody. Well, you're just missing out. I mean, listen, you can watch bad SEC basketball. Go watch Georgia-Missouri. You know, uh, you know, uh, have your heart out. What's the term that I'm missing here? Uh, bleed your heart. I don't know what the term is. But, but, but you know, have a blast watching Georgia-Missouri. I'm going to watch Arizona because on offense, they are absolutely incredible. And I've said it many times. Sean Miller, uh, a lot of things went wrong under his watch. But one thing you can't deny is this. He left the, t- the cupboard full for Tommy, Lo- for Tommy Lloyd, and Tommy Lloyd, I believe, has taken it to another level. This is how good they are on offense. Number three nationally in scoring, 84 points per game. Number one in assists. Number 11 in field goal percentage. And so you just watch them. It is this beautiful ball motion, ball, uh, you know, poetry, ball movement, motion, passing, cutting, dribbling, dunking they are just so fun to watch they're so physically more dominant than so many teams that they play they are in my opinion I think they're the funnest team to watch in college basketball but what I do think people forget is when you think of Tommy Lloyd and you think of the Gonzaga style and you think of now being at Arizona you think well they just score a bunch of points they don't play defense well that's simply not true now part of it is they have two dominant seven footers down low I think that in many ways if you took Arizona's three off the bench uh, Umar Balo, uh, you know Umar Balo, Justin Kyer, and Pella Larson. I think you can make the case that that's probably the, the the foundation of an NCAA tournament team in its own right. But when you have the size and physicality that they have, everybody thinks oh, all they do is play offense. Well, here's the bottom line: you know who's number two in the country in field goal percentage defense behind only Houston? It's the Arizona Wildcats, and it is because they're so dominant up front with Christian Coloco and uh, and Umar Balo. And so listen. If you want to argue, if you want to sit here and say they don't play anybody, they're in the Pac-12, what? I, I don't care. You do what you want. I'm going to watch the best, funnest, most exciting teams in college basketball, and I believe Arizona this year is good enough to win a national championship. Uh, I do. If you're asking me for a concern about Arizona, do worry a little bit about do they have enough ball handling outside of Kirk Kresa, who, of course, uh, is a sophomore from Estonia. 
But I really, really, really like this team, and I think they really, really, really have a chance to be good. Number three on my list, and I've already mentioned it, you know my list, it's Duke. And here's the thing with Duke, right? Um, I, I originally put out the tweet that I put out on Sunday. I put it out on Saturday, and I had only four. I had Auburn, Arizona, Gonzaga, Kentucky. And then I decided, you know what? I have to include Duke because the thing about Duke is this, is on the one hand, I think that they are the most inconsistent of all of the teams on this list. Like, you look at Arizona. um, They had one bad night all season, and that was against maybe the most talented team they played against UCLA. Um, Kentucky basically hasn't had a bad night since Notre Dame in early November. Uh, Who else? So, Gonzaga hasn't really had a bad night all year. Auburn really hasn't had a bad night all year. Duke has had bad nights, and Duke has had really bad stretches. They lost to Virginia, which isn't an NCAA tournament team. Um, You know, Miami is kind of a bubble team. They lost at home to them as well. Florida State's probably on the outside looking in. Duke lost to them. But I bring it up because while they're the most inconsistent of all the teams on this list, I would also say this. They have five to six-minute stretches where you just say, oh my God, that's the best team in college basketball, where they completely lock down on offense, where they have four or five guys that are going to play in the, or completely locked down on defense, have four or five guys that you know are going to play in the NBA on, off- on, def- on offense, and you're just like, oh my goodness. And this goes back to something I talked about after I saw Duke in person against Gonzaga over Thanksgiving break, and that was that, you know, they may be the only team in college basketball. They, they might have four guys that can get you 20 on any given night. Paulo Bencaro, A.J. Griffin, uh, Mark Williams, Wendell Moore. I'd even include Trevor Keels, who, of course, was great against Kentucky in the opener. And what I would say about Duke, first of all, Jabari Smith might be the most, the best number, you know, the, the potential number one overall pick. I do think in terms of freshman difference makers, Paulo Bencaro, we'll get to Chet Holmgren in a minute, Paulo Bencaro is right, on, right in the mix as well. Uh, it's funny because I, I've been watching Duke and I kind of in my head was like, I feel like Paulo's kind of been struggling of late. And then I looked at the stat lines, 16 and 14 versus Boston College, 15 and 10 versus Clemson. So it's not as though the guy has been playing well, but what I would also say about him is to his credit, he also has played some of his best basketball in some of the biggest games of Duke season. I've talked about it many times. I talked about it 30 seconds ago. I was at the Gonzaga game earlier this year in November, and that was the game where, oh, by the way, uh, this guy went for 21 points, and 20 of them were in the first half. He, of course, had 22-7 and against Kentucky on opening night. He did get cramps in both those games, but I bring it up because he has been at his best in his biggest games, so when he gets a 16-14 and versus Boston College or a 15-10 and versus Clemson, it doesn't feel as good. But what I think is also important with, Paulo, with Duke is all the other guys that are around Paolo. First of all, it goes without saying it's been a national storyline. The emergence of A.J. Griffin, another five-star McDonald's All-American, top 10 pick coming into this year. He struggled with injuries late in his high school career, did not play a senior year of high school uh, because of COVID, and it took him a little while uh, at Duke because he had another injury once he got to Duke. Well, now he's back on the court. He's averaging just under 10 points per game. He's shooting some absurd, like 49% from three, and so you look at what he brings, and then what I would also say is this. Mark Williams, like the bigs at Arizona, like Walker Kessler at, at Auburn, and like Chet Holmgren at Duke, Walker, uh, Mark Williams is a game changer at the rim for Duke. This is a guy that averaged three blocks per game. This is a guy that really allows, he's just, he's so important to what they do, and there are games where he can go off and go crazy and score a bunch of points. 
Um, you know, again, you go back to a couple other games from throughout the year, you could argue that he was maybe the best player on the court uh, for Duke, depending on who they were playing and what they were playing and the role that he had. I was, again, for the thousandth time, I was at the Gonzaga game. 17 points, nine rebounds, six blocks in that game. That shows you the impact that he can have. The only thing with Duke that I would say, and this, by the way, is a credit to them. This shows me how good they are. When you talk about Duke, I think a lot of people would sit there and say, Paolo's great, Wendell Moore is great, uh, A.J. Griffin is great, but do they have the point guard play? Well, I went and looked it up on uh, on Sunday before I, I started recording this segment, and it cracks me up because I was sitting here thinking, I don't know if Duke's point guard play is good enough to win a title. Trevor Keels is averaging 12 points, four rebounds, and three assists per game with one and a half steals. Like, that's an absurd stat line for a freshman point guard in college basketball in the ACC. And so when I look at this team, the guard play isn't as bad as I thought. They're only turning the ball over 10 and a half times per game, which is one of the, the fewest in college basketball. And this is a team that is absolutely good enough to win it all. Can't believe how long this segment's going, so I'll try to be quick on the final two. Uh, you know, one is Gonzaga. And listen, again, if you want to argue, Gonzaga, they don't play anybody, the WCC stinks, this is what I tell you. The WCC is about to get the same number of bids, if not more, in the NCAA tournament than than the ACC is. So if you say that Gonzaga doesn't play anybody, what you ultimately have to say is that Duke doesn't play anybody either. And what I would also say is this. I know every time I bring up Gonzaga, and I probably picked them to win the last 97 national championships. I'm not going to fall into that trap again. But when I, whenever I bring up Gonzaga, people say, they'll never win a national championship coming out of that conference. And that drives me crazy. Because here's the bottom line. In the last four NCAA tournaments, they've played for the national title twice, which means that they were literally in one game a break or two away, a bounce or two away from beating North Carolina, winning the title in 2017. And then what I would say last year, and I've said it before on the podcast, like they were definitively the second best team in college basketball. The problem was that Baylor was just so much better than everybody else. And so when I look at Gonzaga, they were, uh, you know, and I would never wish injury upon anybody, but they were a twisted ankle from Baylor. They were a bad foul call from Baylor. Like they were, oh, by the way, COVID from Baylor. If COVID doesn't happen in 2020, Baylor probably at least makes an Elite Eight, probably a Final Four, and loses a bunch of players to the pros off that team. Instead, COVID happens. They all come back. Gonzaga, they probably win the national championship last year if there was no COVID. So you could go on and on and on. Oh, they're overrated. They don't play anybody. I'm just telling you, I disagree. I vehemently disagree. And if we have to disagree with that one, we're fine. What I would say about Gonzaga in terms of why I think they can win it all, and I do think this is important in the context of last season, um, Last season, they couldn't defend anybody. That's the biggest difference between this year and last year is last year, uh, they basically had to outscore everybody to win. They, they played that, that small ball lineup, Drew Timmy at the five, no rim protection. They weren't a great rebounding team, if I remember correctly. You know who's really, really, really good this year defensively? Uh, Gonzaga is. And it's because of Chad Holmgren. And I don't think people realize the impact that he has had. And I know he's this big, lanky, kind of goofy-looking kid, and he shoots a lot of threes. He is a difference maker on defense. Here's the stats. Gonzaga's number three in the country in field goal percentage defense, okay? They're number three in the country in field goal percentage defense, which, again, like Walker Kessler at Auburn, like Mark Williams at Duke, like Christian Coloco at Arizona, they have guys that protect the rim, and it changes the game. And on top of that, they get just as many buckets on offense. I should say, by the way, I think Chet Holmgren has been the difference for this team as goofy as he sounds. As goofy, goofy as he looks, he's putting up some insane stat lines. 20 points, 17 rebounds, 6 assists, five, five, 5 assists, 6 blocks against BYU the other day. So this guy's a difference maker, and I think what's important is he changes what they do on defense, 
But on offense, they're the exact same team as last year. Five players in double figures, scoring in double figures, all five of their starters. They shoot 38% from three. They are the number two scoring offense in college basketball behind only uh, the number two, the number one, excuse me, scoring offense in college basketball. Uh, so, you know, you look at this team. They score as much as anybody, 90 points per game. And then on top of that, they are now playing really good defense. This really might be the year. I know I say it every year. I know I pick Gonzaga quite a bit. This really might be the year that they're good enough to win it all. Finally, number five is Kentucky. And listen, I've talked about Kentucky a ton. But what I would just say about Kentucky in terms of why they can win it all, I mean, if you watch the games, and it goes back to what I said a minute ago, is that really you take a team like Duke, and Duke's awesome. But Duke has had some flashes where they really don't look very good and they've lost some weird games to some bad teams. Well, here's Kentucky's deal. Kentucky hasn't lost at full strength against anybody since way back on December 11th against Notre Dame. So basically... As I record here, they're currently sitting at 21-4 overall. They took two losses to Auburn and LSU in SEC play, both with, ma- with major players missing injuries. They are, at full strength, essentially 21-2. And, and that's not totally correct because they had some guys out in other games as well. But, you know, you take out the two losses against Auburn and LSU where they were banged up and still almost won both games on the road. They, their two losses at full strength are opening night to Duke and against Notre Dame, back in early December. And so when I look at this team, what I like about them is they don't have nights off. They don't take bad losses, at least as of right now, four months into the season. And you know why that's important? It is because as we come down the stretch here, they do have some very tough games left on the schedule, but they got some built-in wins as well, and they don't take bad losses. So if they just do what they've been doing for the last four months, they're going to win enough games to get the number one to get a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, and we all know that if you get the number one seed, uh, it makes your path to a Final Four and a national championship that much easier. In terms of why I like them, I'll say this: I mean, the obvious one is they have the you know the guy that's going to win National Player of the Year. Like like we can argue Jaden Ivey this, we can argue uh, I don't know uh, whoever uh, uh, Jabari Smith, we can argue Johnny Davis from Wisconsin, Oscar Sheboy is your National Player of the Year. Sixteen points, fifteen rebounds per game. And oh, by the way, just another ho-hum Oscar night on, uh, on Saturday against Florida as Oscar Shibway goes for 27 points and 19 rebounds. And again, I can't overstate this enough. That wasn't even one of his best games at Kentucky. Like, that's the crazy part, 27 and 19. That's not even not normal for Oscar Shibway. But while Oscar Shibway gets the attention, here's what I would say is we know in March, guard play matters. We know in March you need multiple ball handlers and multiple playmakers. And I was talking to uh, a former coach the other day, multiple time, uh, you know, kind of a, a, you know, second weekend type coach, you know, guy that's been to multiple second weekends, won a ton of tournament games. And what he said is he thinks Kentucky, I'm just going to say it. He said he thinks Kentucky's the best team in the country because of the guard play. And he thinks Kentucky's the best team in the country for this reason. It is because you really have three guys that can really handle the ball if you have to. Really, it's, it's Severe Wheeler, who is, of course, second in the country in assists with, with over seven per game. Ty Ty Washington, 14.5 points, 4.5 assists per game, which I don't think people realize. Like, Ty Ty Washington, as a secondary playmaker, would be leading most teams in assists in college basketball, and Davion Mintz can even play the point in a pinch. And so when I look at Kentucky, what I love about them is, one, again, they basically haven't had an off night since early December. But two, I love how all the pieces fit. 
I love the fact that you have the size and physicality of Oscar Sheepway down low. I love that you have multiple ball handlers. The only two things that concern me about Kentucky are this. One, they did struggle opening night with the length of Duke. I do think the good thing is they've looked much better against similar teams of late. Could have beaten Auburn if they hadn't gotten all, you know two or three guys go down with injuries. Uh, could have beaten LSU if they didn't have two or three guys go down with injuries. So the length I don't think is as big of an issue. But I do think the one thing you got to start worrying about if you're a Kentucky fan, and I do think this is something, there's a lot of injuries with this team, man. Severe Wheeler's missed time with the neck. Uh, Ty Ty Washington, another ankle injury after the previous one a few weeks ago. Jacob Toppin missed the game on Saturday against Florida. So that is the only thing, and I know injuries are part of the deal in college basketball, but I'm just telling you, uh, you know, that's the only real thing that worries me about Kentucky is the injuries. Are they good enough? So there it is. Those are the five teams that I believe can win the national championship. That's it. I didn't know I was going to go 30 freaking minutes on it, but the five teams that I believe can win it all, Auburn, Arizona, Duke, Gonzaga, Kentucky. Let me give you some thoughts on uh, just a couple other teams before we get out of here because I know I'll have the – I already had on social media the Purdue fans, the this fan, the that fan saying, well, what about us? A couple of teams. UCLA was actually the first team I left off this list because UCLA, when they are locked in at full strength, I mean, they beat Arizona. They beat the crap out of them. Um, they beat Villanova, and really outside of about a six-minute stretch to start the game against Gonzaga, they were equal with Gonzaga. thing with UCLA is two things. One, they have no size down low, really. Um, you know, I, I, Cody Riley is a really good college player, but he's about a 6'8 center. Um, you know, Miles Johnson transferred from Rutgers is a good player, but he's not an elite player when you're talking about going up against multiple seven-footers like you're going to have to against Arizona, against Gonzaga, against UC, uh, against uh, Duke, against whoever. So UCLA, I like them, but one... I do worry about their length. I was at that Arizona game a few weeks ago, and you just you were watching the game, and there was a couple times that Cody Riley caught the ball, and you're like, oh, he can't do anything with these big guys down low for Arizona. But then number two, there's just something not, not right with them. I mean, obviously there was the incident in Arizona. Matt Etienne uh, spits on a guy, gets suspended, gets arrested, gets whatever. Well, since that, that Arizona game, I mean, they've lost two or three since that game. They lost over the weekend. Um, you know, over the weekend, UCLA lost to... Uh, they lost to uh, USC, by the way. USC was without their best player, Isaiah Mobley. They also lost to Arizona State after that Arizona game. Their only win was on Monday against Stanford on the road. And again, I, I do in some ways feel bad for these Pac-12 teams. They're having to make up a million games in a short window. UCLA still has two, four, six, seven regular season games left. A lot left on the schedule. But I bring it up because... There's something just not right with them right now. They've lost three of their last four dating back to that Arizona loss. Something is not right. Purdue, listen, I had Purdue fans up my you-know-what that I didn't include them on my list. They don't play defense. They don't play defense. They don't play defense. There's nothing else for me to say. They don't play defense. Gave up 82 the other night to Michigan in a loss. They got destroyed by a bubble team in Michigan. Who then, oh, by the way, lost two days later to Ohio State. So stop selling me on Purdue. I think Jaden Ivey is one of the most impressive players I've seen. I also think sometimes he tries to do too much. And I think the centers, as good as they are, I just don't think that that team gets enough stops. I don't think they get enough stops. I do worry about those big, burly centers in NCAA tournament-type settings. We saw the Big Ten. We'll talk about the Big Ten at some point. But every single year, you get those big centers. They beat each other up in the Big Ten. Then you get to the NCAA tournament. You can't play them because they get abused by quicker, faster, more athletic teams. Go back to Luca Garza last year at Iowa. He was awesome all year. Gets the NCAA tournament. 
and Oregon pick and rolls him to death where every single play is a layup because he's having to defend some guy and they're just getting destroyed. So Purdue, I like them. I think they can make an elite. I think they can even make a Final Four. I think they can play for a national championship. But do I think in a span of six games that are needed to win a national championship, if they have to beat Arizona and Duke back-to-back, if they have to beat um, Gonzaga and Arizona, Gonzaga and Kentucky, Kentucky and Duke, I just don't think they can do it. I think they're really, really, really good. I think they might be a number one seed. I think they might be a number two seed. I think they can get to a Final Four. I don't think they can win it all. Also in the Big Ten, Illinois. In the order of teams that I wanted to include on this list, UCLA was number one. Illinois was actually ahead of Purdue. Here's my only concern about Illinois. They've played three teams that are currently ranked in the top 10, three games against teams currently ranked in the top 10. They're 0-3. Lost at home to Arizona, lost at home to Purdue, lost to Purdue on the road earlier this week. So here's my question. Are they really a national championship contender, or are they just one of those teams that, to their credit, they beat everybody they're supposed to, but when they get against those truly, truly, truly elite teams, they can't keep up? Illinois, to me, is probably the team, I know I said UCLA, probably the team that I would just have them below the cut line but again, I think they can make a Final Four. I think they could potentially win an, uh, compete, uh, get to a national championship game. But can they beat Kentucky and Duke back-to-back? Can they beat Gonzaga and Arizona back-to-back? Can they beat Gonzaga and Duke, Arizona and Duke? Whoever it's going to take, I just don't know. And then the final team is Providence. It's kind of the same deal. I love Providence. You know, Providence is not a, a darling of the metrics. And so because of that, uh, I think they get criticized a lot by the national media that, again, um, you know, basically all has the same opinions on everything. I think Providence is really good, and I think Providence is one of those teams. I think I could see the scenario where they're in an Elite Eight game against Duke to go to a Final Four. They're like a six-and-a-half-point underdog, and they win outright to go to a Final Four. I just don't know if they can win six straight, the six needed to win a national championship. With that said, I think it's time for me to get out of there. By the way, one last college hoops thing, and I didn't think this segment was going to go 36 minutes long. Um, one last college hoop thing. Shout out to Memphis who beat Houston on Saturday. And, you know, I had Memphis fans chirping at me. Yo, you never give Penny Hardaway. You criticize him when he does bad, but you don't criticize, you know, you don't give him credit when he does well. You know, credit, credit to Memphis. I mean, listen, what I would say is a couple things. One, Houston struggling. Houston lost on, on Thursday night to SMU. But when it comes to Memphis, when it comes to winning this game, like credit to Memphis. I've never once said, that I didn't think they were good enough. I just thought that something was missing. Well, Memphis now picks up its second marquee win of the season. They obviously beat Alabama earlier this year, and Alabama, for all the goofiness of their season, Alabama beats Arkansas on Saturday. Oh, by the way, Alabama has wins over Gonzaga, Baylor, and Houston, so you know Alabama's good. Uh, So Memphis has that win, and then they have the win against Houston on Saturday. I'd say a couple things. You know, one, I saw my buddy John Rothstein say that Memphis is now in the position they don't need to win the AAC tournament to make the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I don't believe that. Um, you know, they're 14-8 and eight right now, 8-4. and four. And yeah, I mean, I could see the scenario where if they win every single game left on their schedule starting on Tuesday night at Cincinnati and then, oh, by the way, they play next, next weekend, next Sunday at SMU. Like, yeah, I could see the scenario where they don't have to win every single game to make the NCAA tournament or they don't have to win the conference tournament to make the NCAA tournament. But they basically are going to have to win every single other game. Like, they're going to have to win every game in the regular season and probably win two games in the conference tournament so that they don't have to win the NCAA tournament. So I still think they have to win the the conference tournament to get in. But then what I would say really quick is what is interesting about Memphis, and this is the reason I didn't tweet about them, by the way. My, My stance on Memphis has been clear since the Alabama game. 
In the Alabama game, if you remember, if you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I talked about it. And then I talked about it again uh, a few weeks later when, uh, when they lost and Penny went off on his rate crazy rant. There is a very linear path right now to when Memphis plays well and when they don't. And I don't tweet it because it's going to criticize one particular kid who just turned 18 years old. But if you look at Memphis, all of their best basketball has essentially been played when Imani Bates is not on the floor. And when he comes on the floor, it's disaster. And I'm not blaming the kid. He, he was 17. He just turned 18. He reclassified. He should be a senior in high school. And to his discredit, everybody in the media gassed this kid up since he was 14 years old. I didn't. I can go back to, to, to segments from this podcast from three summers ago where I said, why are we labeling a 15-year-old kid the best since LeBron, the best since KD, the next KD, whatever. But if you look, the Alabama game, Memphis makes their run when Imani Bates is on the bench. Memphis, which has currently, as I record here, won five straight games. You know when that five-game winning streak started? When Imani Bates went out with injury. Imani Bates played 26 games in that game against Tulsa. And then from there, he played against ECU a couple minutes. And then he hasn't played the last three games. He left the team briefly to go get his back checked out. Uh, But to me, I think it's pretty straightforward. I'm sure he's a really good kid. I don't discredit him. I don't want him not to succeed, but the team is better when he's not on the floor. So I don't know if he's really injured or I don't know if they're protecting him. Um, You know, Kentucky fans will remember this, and I hate to even bring up this name because he has since passed away, but last year there was kind of this weird thing with Terrence Clark where uh, everybody claimed he was injured, but John Calipari even said post-game that that the doctors had cleared him, so why isn't he playing? And I'm kind of getting the same vibes with Imani Bates. So with Memphis, like, yeah, credit for beating Houston. I've never doubted Memphis's talent. And by the way, I've never said Penny Hardaway can't coach. I've said he over-recruits, he has too many guys on the roster, and he's committed to playing the wrong players. And so they've won five straight, three straight without Imani Bates, and I do wonder if we see him uh, back on the court at Memphis anytime soon because the team's playing well without him, and I do feel like there's something interesting going on there. But with that said, uh, shout-out to Memphis. Great win. Again, I still don't know that they can get into the NCAA tournament without winning their conference tournament, but they did what they needed to do on Saturday. Whew. All right. With that said, I do think it's time for me to get out of here. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. By the way, if you like the college hoops talk, uh, yeah, we're going to have a lot of that the next six weeks. And then we'll have transfer talk, which is just as fun as, uh, you know, uh, uh, non-transfer talk. But, uh, you know, uh, the point I'm trying to bring up is if you like the college hoops, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Do we have a lot of college hoops coming up for you over these next few days, over these next few weeks, over these next few months, frankly. So I want to thank you guys and girls for listening. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music. By the way, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel as we close in on 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you guys and girls for all your support on YouTube as well. Make sure to rate and review the show. And make sure to follow on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. By the way, I mentioned it a few times, but if you want to be a sponsor of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, if you want to reach all sorts of people during the NCAA tournament or not during the NCAA tournament, make sure to reach out to my email, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com uh, if you are not already doing so. With that said, I do think it is time for me to get out of here. Thank you again for listening. 
Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I'll be back Wednesday. I think I might have a pretty good guest coming on that you're going to want to listen to. Not positive it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. Not positive. So stay tuned for that. I'll be back on Wednesday, party people. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.